the image of God, God has made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for, for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth, and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. We'll now read from 1 Peter 1, verse 14 to 21. As obedient children, do not conform, conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in the last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. As we light the first candle of Advent, we look back on the coming of Jesus and we rejoice. He is the spotless Lamb of God, chosen by his Father before the creation of the world to come for our sake at just the right time. In him, we find God's grace freely given to us, even though the desires and inclinations of our hearts are evil. We also look forward to when he comes again, and in anticipation of that day, we seek to live reverent and holy lives. At this time, the kids can go to Kid Zone, the LITs can go to LIT class, and the rest of you have to stay here. You know, one of the strange things about living in Canada is the fall decorations. I lived in the U.S. for 10 years growing up, uh, and down there they have three distinct phases of fall decorations, right? In October, it's Halloween season, and all the witches and the goblins and the pumpkins come out. And then October 31st comes, and then in November, now it's Thanksgiving season, because their Thanksgiving is at the end of November. And then the pumpkins stay out, but the witches and goblins go away, and you get the cornucopias and the pilgrims and those kind of things. And then at the end of November, those decorations go away, and the Christmas decorations start coming out. Whereas in Canada, you know, because our Thanksgiving is in October, there's no buffer between 
Christmas and uh, Halloween, and the seasons kind of bleed into each other a little bit. It's weird. I literally, and I mean, this doesn't just last in November. Yesterday, I saw a skeleton hanging from someone's door dressed as Santa Claus. Listen, I kind of like the American way of doing things because I like having that buffer between Halloween and Christmas, right? I don't love Halloween decorations in the first place. I specifically find it very jarring when you can see severed limbs hanging from a tree in one yard and look across the street and see sparkly reindeer. It just doesn't work, right? I love Christmas decorations. They're so beautiful and merry. They don't mix with Halloween decorations. But you know, if you walk through your neighborhood, any, any neighborhood in the city, there's another decoration that you're definitely going to see in several houses of, or apartments around your neighborhood. Not just at Christmas, but all year round. They come out in force in June, but any time in the year, you're going to see them on buildings, businesses, houses, schools, even churches, all across the city, all across North America, all around the world. And I'm talking about rainbow flags, right? Those decorations are up around our city all the time. And you know what? You may not be expecting me to say this. Those don't bother me as much at Christmas time as Halloween decorations do. They're not as jarring as Halloween decorations are. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you today that unless you see a nativity scene in a neighborhood, a rainbow flag is probably the best Christmas decoration that you'll see in any given neighborhood. That might have shocked you. Maybe I'm just trying to be provocative. But let me explain what I mean by that. The truth is that rainbows point to the birth of Jesus in a significant way. Certainly far more significantly, significantly than an inflatable minion with a Santa Claus hat does. And as we've already said this morning, this is the first Sunday in Advent. And during Advent, we anticipate Christmas and remember the advent of Jesus, or the coming or appearing of Jesus 2,000 years ago. That's what Advent means, coming or appearance. And this year, we're going to anticipate Christmas by looking at, at a series of promises that God made. These sacred promises in the Bible are called covenants. There are five of them explicitly mentioned in the Bible, and they form the backbone of the Bible's plotline. In the next five weeks, if you listen to all these sermons, you'll get a good uh, idea of how the story of the Bible fits together by looking at these covenants. And these covenants that form the backbone of the plot of the Bible are going to point us to the main character of the Bible, who is Jesus. Today we're going to look at the first of these covenant promises, the covenant God made, made with Noah. Or, to be more accurate, the covenant that God made with all of creation through Noah. It's not just for Noah, it's for all of us. Knowing that, having heard the story that we just read, you may have at least a general idea of why I said before that rainbows are one of the best Christmas decorations, and yes, that is my main idea today. At the end of the story of Noah and the flood, God set, says that the rainbow is a sign that he's never going to destroy the earth with a flood again. He's never going to wipe out all of life until the end of time. But let me show you more fully why this is true. Three truths that rainbows remind us of. The first is this. Rainbows remind us of God's judgment on sin. We all, we all know the story of Noah's Ark, right? After God created Adam and Eve, we spent a few weeks looking at that recently. 
They sinned. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And humanity just kept getting, humanity just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it was so bad that if we read in Genesis 6, verse 5, which is before the passage that we had read for us today, we read these words. The Lord saw... Find it here. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of, uh, of, humani- of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. So God sends a flood that wipes out all life on earth. The only humans that God spares are a man named Noah and his family, right? That verse 8 of Genesis 6 continues and says, But Noah found favor, or we could translate that grace, it's the same word in Hebrew, in the eyes of the Lord. He commands Noah to build this ark, huge boat, and God sends two of every kind of animal into the ark, and they're saved from the flood while the rest of the world drowns. Now, this is one of those stories that is grossly misrepresented by Christians. I went to a church when I was in Bible college where they painted a picture on the nursery wall of an ark with happy animals. My kids have two Noah's Ark toys. I get it, right? It's kind of a cool toy. The two animals of each kind and the big boat. It's a cool visual. But this isn't a cute or happy story in any way, shape, or form. This is a story about God's wrath on mankind because of sin. You know, in 2014, there was a big budget Hollywood movie made about this called Noah, and it's terrible. Don't watch it. The uh, director is an atheist and hates God, and it shows and also, there's big rock, fallen angel people who helped Noah build the ark. It's just a mess of a movie. Don't watch it. But there's one scene in there when I watched it that stuck with me. That, that is, I think, very accurate to what it would have been like in Noah's day. Noah and his family are in the ark. The doors have shut. The animals are there. The rain is coming. And outside, they show the people that are scrambling onto buildings and trees and up mountains to try and escape from the rain that is rising, the floods that are rising, and they can't get away, and it keeps coming, and Noah and his family are in the ark, and they can hear them screaming. It's too late for them. The judgment has come for their sin, and they can't get away. The story of Noah, it ends with a rainbow, But it begins with God's terrible judgment on sin. Don't don't skim over that fact. Let that sink into you. That God hates sin. And you and I are sinful. That verse in Genesis 6-5 that I read a moment ago is that God looked at the human race and he sees that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Every inclination of the thoughts of our heart is only evil all the time? There's not even a glimmer of goodness in us? Well, it depends on what you mean by that, right? We're not all psychopathic serial killers. 
And I assume that though the world was violent in Noah's day, it wasn't that bad either because there were people for God to judge. They didn't, hadn't all killed each other. What does God mean? This is a, a teaching that the Bible has all through it. And our statement of faith uh, summarizes it this way. It says that sin was introduced into the world when Adam disobeyed God. The result of this first sin is that all humanity is alienated from God and every aspect of their total being is depraved. Humanity thereby incurred the condemnation of God resulting in physical, spiritual, and eternal death. Now there's a phrase in the middle of that paragraph that's really important. That every aspect of our total being is depraved. That word depraved may not be one that you're familiar with. It's an important word. It doesn't mean, again, that we're all as bad as we could be. We haven't gone down the path as far as we possibly could be into complete, awful sinfulness. But it does mean that every aspect of who we are is tainted with sin. When my kids are done dinner, they are not allowed to get down from their chair and leave the table until they've had their hands and their face wiped. Because we know that if they get down from the table before we've done that, they're going to touch something and stain it with whatever it was that they were eating. They have a talent for getting whatever it was that they were eating all over themselves and then all over everything else. And this is true even if their intention is to get up from the table and go wash their hands. On the way to washing their hands, they're going to touch my pants, they're going to touch the wall, they're going to drag a chair over to the sink, and everything's going to be covered in ketchup. Even their attempts for good stain things with sin. Or, sorry, with ketchup, I guess, in their, in their case. <laughs> But when we're talking about sin, even our good deeds, even our, even our best deeds are not pure. They're stained with our sin. We can't escape having sinful ulterior motives. You know, we could be generous, but often it's so that we feel good about ourselves. We serve others. Oh, and then we get angry when they don't serve us back. We, o- we obey God because we think if we do, he'll owe us a blessing. And when hard times come, we get mad at God. And no matter, no matter what we do, it ultimately comes back to the same sin that Adam and Eve committed when they ate that fruit in that garden. Instead of God being on the throne of our lives, we're on the throne of our lives. We do what makes us feel good and what serves our need at the end of the day. And that's in our best moments. In our worst moments, well, we know what awful kinds of things that we're capable of. The reality is that deep down in the depths of our hearts, we, don't, we just don't want to honor God. We don't even want to know him. And we're not able to unless God intervenes. That's who we are by nature. We're rebels against our creator. And so we've committed cosmic treason against the king of the universe. And every other act, word, and thought that comes out of us is tainted by that. That wasn't just true in Noah's day. It's still true. Listen to what the apostle Paul said thousands of years after Noah. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He says, this is is true then. It's true today. This is a couple thousand years ago. But it's still true for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is who we are. And so we deserve 
God's terrible judgment. And our statement of faith says it's not just physical death, but spiritual and eternal death. We deserve hell for our sins. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, describes hell as a lake of fire. Whether that's metaphorical or spiritual or, or real, I, I, I don't know. Literal, I don't know. But it sounds terrible. And it calls it a second death that happens after death. It's a horrific description. You know, if there is one teaching that I was allowed to erase from the Bible, it would be this. I struggle with this. Don't think that I'm up here gleefully preaching to you about God's judgment. I'm not. This terrifies me. It sickens me in some sense. But whatever I feel about it, it's true. What I have to confess to you today is that it's not only true that it's, it's good, it's just. I, I can't wrap my mind around, if I'm honest, about how this could be good and just. It doesn't really make sense in my mind. And the reason for that is because I just don't really believe that my sin is that bad. I could possibly deserve that. But it is. And just like a human judge would be unjust to let a guilty criminal go free, so God, who is the supreme supreme judge, would be unjust if he didn't punish our sins with his terrible judgment. This is what rainbows remind us of. God's judgment against sin. But thankfully, God isn't just a God of judgment. And rainbows remind us of that too because the second truth that rainbows remind us of is that God is, God is patient with sin. Rainbows remind us of God's judgment against sin, but God, rainbows also remind us of God's patience with sin. After the flood subsides and Noah and his family come off the ark along with all the animals, God says something very interesting to Noah and his family. Look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. We read that God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Now, if you've been around the past month or so, if you just know the story of creation in Genesis, those words should sound familiar to you. We spent the last couple, five weeks or so looking at Genesis 1 and 2 and discovering what it means for us to be humans created in the image of God. And in those chapters, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God says or blesses Adam and Eve, just like he blesses Noah and his family, and he gave them the same command. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. He says that to them right after he creates them. He repeats himself to Noah and his family because the story of Noah is God starting fresh on the earth. Noah is like another Adam. Take two of the plan of creation. Except as we keep reading in Genesis chapter 9, we find out that it isn't completely a fresh and new start. It's not like it was when God created the world and put Adam and Eve in that garden. Because the world hasn't been fixed by this flood. It's still broken by sin. The flood punished sin by wiping out life, but it didn't fix the problem. And God acknowledges this in the next verses. You keep reading, you find out God's not, or Noah is not living in Eden. The relationship between humans and animals has changed since the Garden of Eden, and violence between humans will be a problem. We don't have time to unpack these verses today. Maybe one day we'll go through this uh, more fully. But the important thing for you to understand if you read those verses is that the world is broken by sin, and God knows that, 
He knows that things are going to be different now for humans. And they're going to have to be different for humans to be able to flourish in this world, to, pre- to preserve life from violence and sin. This is no longer a paradise. Sin has broken it. And if that's true, that should make us wonder. What did the flood really accomplish? So the world hasn't, world hasn't gotten any better. It didn't fix the problem. Sinful people got punished, but now there are just going to be more sinful people. And in fact, if you read, the, read on a few chapters, you will see the story about how Noah gets so stone drunk that he strips down naked and passes out in public. And his son, when he sees him, instead of caring about his dad's dignity, laughs at him and shows his other brothers what happened. Sin continues. Broken relationships continue. And if you keep reading Genesis, you read about violence and murder and war and injustice and oppression and greed. So what does God do? Does he wipe out the world again? No. He makes a covenant. Sacred promise with Noah and with all humans and with actually the entire world, as I said before. Look at, look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 8 with me. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came off the ark with you, every living creature on earth. This covenant isn't limited in its scope, right? It covers everyone and everything exists. There are no loopholes. There are no escape clauses here. God is making this promise for everybody and everything. So what's the covenant promise? Well, verse 11 says, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, this should give us pause. It should make us wonder. If, if God is a just God who must punish sin, and if we are sinners, how can God take a different approach to sin now? How can he do that? How can he say, I'm not going to do that again? Shouldn't he just constantly wipe us out every few generations? I mean, it's even more shocking when you back up to the end of chapter 8 and see what God says to himself about this before he tells Noah. In Genesis 8, the flood ends. Noah comes off the ark and he makes a sacrifice to God. Probably a sacrifice of praise, saying thank you for for sparing us. And maybe even a a sacrifice of petition, of, of asking God, please don't do that to us again. We're not told exactly what it is, but it may be those things. And look how God responds to the sacrifice in verse 21. Chapter 8, verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Did you recognize what God says in here? So he says, for as long as the earth endures, I won't wipe out all life again. But he also says this, even though, even though what? Even though Every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Did you recognize that? That's the reason he did it in the first place. He says, well, that hasn't changed. It's still true. It's almost the exact same phrase. 
This is still the case, God says, but I won't judge the whole world like that again, not until the end of the world. Now, now notice he doesn't say he'll never do it again, right? He says, as long as the earth endures. There will come a day, we're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, when God will melt the heavens and the earth with fire and bring his final judgment. And then he'll make all things new for those who love Christ. We're going to look at 2 Peter in the new year, Lord willing, and we'll see some of this coming up again. But until that final judgment, which has been thousands and thousands and thousands of years since Noah, until that final judgment, God is going to be patient. That's his promise. His covenant, covenant promise that he gave to the whole world through Noah is that he's going to be patient. And of course, the sign of that covenant, the reminder and assurance that he, that he gives is the rainbow, right? Genesis chapter 9, verse 12, he says this. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making uh, between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow on the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. In October, Becky and I went up to Beacon Bible Camp where Becky's parents work. It's up near Gravenhurst, up in Muskoka. There's a camp where Becky and I actually met, and uh, Becky's parents work there now. They live there, and we, we went there for Thanksgiving, and it rained the whole time. It was just like, we didn't do anything. We couldn't go outside and enjoy the campgrounds. It was just chucking down rain, except for like one afternoon, it stopped for a minute, and David and Katie thought it would be a good idea to go canoeing, and they got soaked because it started raining again. But uh, we, we went out for a walk, and we went down to the waterfront, and there was this beautiful double rainbow. I, I could see the end of the rainbow right sitting on the lake. I've never seen that before. And my first thought was, where's the pot of gold? Ha, 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 ha. It should have been this, right? This beautiful, it was a double rainbow, actually. And, and it was, came right down with the end on the lake. God's patience that I don't deserve for sin was on display in that day. God says, I will never do that again. As long as the earth endures. Whenever you see a rainbow in the sky or even on a flag, remember that God who hates our sin, who brings terrible judgment on sin, and he's being patient with sinners. He's not wiping us out for our sin. And that should make us wonder, why would he do that? Why would he not get it over with? Why would he have that patience? What's the purpose of it? Well, that brings us to the third truth that rainbows remind us of. Rainbows remind us of God's judgment on sin. Rainbows remind us on, of God's patience with sin. And finally, God, uh, rainbows remind us of God's plan to save us from our sin. God was patient because he had a plan. But rainbows remind us of God's plan to save us from our sin. A lot happens in the Bible after Noah's time, right? It's pretty early on in the story. And again, we're going to talk about some of the major developments in the story, in the coming weeks, as we look into the other covenants that God's, God makes. 
But all that happens in the Bible and every covenant that God makes and every part of the story is all leading somewhere. That God has a plan and a purpose that he works to accomplish in history. That's what the story of the Bible is. It's God's plan of salvation in history. That plan is a rescue operation to save us from our sin. And think about that. God would have been just. He would have been right. He would have been good to simply just bring his terrible judgment on us for our sin. But he didn't want to do that. And yet, he can't just ignore our sin either. He's not able to do that. That would not be just. So what can he do? The story of Noah shows us that he chose Noah to be a new Adam, to bring a new beginning to the world, but Noah wasn't capable to change anything. The world was still broken by sin, and Noah himself was a sinner. Though he loved God, and we're told he was a righteous man, he was upright in in the way he lived in general, he wasn't good enough to fix the problem of sin. But what if God could send a man who really could give the world a new beginning? A man who really could start the human race again and do what Adam and Noah failed to do by being perfect and without sin. Well, then things could change, couldn't they? And how would that happen? Well, as I'm sure you're expecting by this point, God's plan to save us from sin comes to a climax in Jesus. In the Old Testament, we learn that God created the world and is a just God and a good God. In the New Testament, we learn that God is greater than we can imagine or really understand. That he is a God who doesn't even fit into our categories of understanding. He's, he's one God who exists as three persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is God the Son, sent by his Father, on a mission into the world to save us. Right, the story of Christmas is the story of Jesus becoming a human to rescue us. We're told in the, for, the first chapter of Luke's Gospel that a young virgin named Mary became pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, and she conceived in her womb the Son of God. God became one of us, born of a virgin, so that he could be what Adam couldn't be, so that he could be what Noah couldn't be, so that he could be what nobody in the entire history of the world could be, a perfectly sinless human one that didn't deserve God's terrible judgment, the first one ever of us who didn't deserve God's terrible judgment. And because Jesus was the first human who fit into that category, he could finally be what we needed him to be, a suitable substitute to stand in our place and take the judgment we deserve. Right? Understand this, because Jesus wasn't just a human, but he was also God, God became one of us so he could say, all that judgment that I need to give to you, I'm going to take it on myself in your place. As a representative to the human race, like Adam was supposed to be, like Noah was supposed to be, I will be that representative and I will take all of it for you. Jesus lived a life of about 33 years. He was executed on a Roman cross physically died, but in the midst of that slow, torturous, excruciating death, he also experienced the second death for us. Now for you or for me, that second death, that hell, would last for eternity. That's how long it would take a finite human being to pay off 
the weight of sin that's on each and, each and every one of us. But because Jesus wasn't merely a human, but also God himself, he endured the judgment that was due to us, to all of us, all of us who are his, in just a matter of hours. Think about the immense spiritual suffering. We usually focus at Easter time, Good Friday, on the the physical suffering of the cross. And there's a lot of suffering to talk about there, but the immense, infinite amount of spiritual suffering that, suffering that Jesus experienced in those three hours on the cross as he literally suffered through hell for us. And when he had completed the task and absorbed every last drop of the judgment that we should have taken, he said in triumph, it is finished. He died. Because Jesus had already defeated sin and death and hell, he wasn't able to be held by death. And on the third day, he rose again. He broke the power of death forever. So now, the message of the gospel is anyone who will acknowledge that their sin is real and a problem and worthy of God's judgment and runs to Jesus for the mercy that we need that his death and his resurrection will be enough to pay the penalty that we owe. If that's you, you'll be forgiven and made new. You won't be made perfect, but Jesus' perfection will be accredited to your account and your sin will be accredited to his account. You swap bank accounts. The Holy Spirit of God will also start to work in you and to change you and to actually make you more holy like Jesus. Now, for most of you, I say that every week, or, or Aaron does, or whoever else is preaching, you know this message, right? You've known it since childhood, or you've known it less recently than, or, you know, less long than that, but you know it. This is very, very, very familiar news. Don't let it be old news. Don't let it be boring news. Let it be precious to you. Let the rainbow remind you of just how precious it is. This Christmas, when you see a rainbow in the sky or on a flag like you can right out the window right there, see the rainbow, remember how it points to Jesus. Remember how it points to the judgment that you deserve. And again, don't skim over that. Let it sink in. Without the terror of the bad news, you won't be amazed by the good news. Remember how the rainbow points you to the, the patience of God. Undeserved, incredible patience that, that paved the way for Christmas. Right? We, we read earlier uh, from 1 Peter chapter 1. It says this in verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. That means you were bought back from that sin and the, the, the things that you've inherited from generations back all the way to the beginning, the brokenness of humanity. You were bought by God, not with perishable things like silver or gold, the verse 19 says, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was a sacrifice for us. And then verse 20 says something incredible. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Right? That's the plan of God at work. 
Let the rainbow remind you of God's plan to save sinners, a plan that began before the beginning of the world, a plan that God made space for by being patient, by giving that covenant in the day of Noah, a plan that finds fulfillment at Christmas. Think about how the rainbow reminds you of God's judgment, patience, and salvation. Then let the sad irony of how it's used today sink into your heart. How the patience of God against sin is used as a symbol to flaunt sin and have pride in it. Then remember that you're not any better who needs God's mercy. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, then you have received it and it is precious. You couldn't have earned it. You didn't earn it. And that's why Jesus had to come at Christmas. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise of grace that was hinted at in the days of Noah. This patience that you have with sin so that so many generations and years later you could send your son at Christmas time, to be the Savior that Noah couldn't be, that Adam couldn't be, that we needed so desperately. Jesus, thank you for being, being willing and the plan that you, your Father, and the Holy Spirit put together before the creation of the world to be the Lamb that was chosen before the creation of the world to be slain for us, that was revealed at just the right time in the plan, and that we get to live with the benefit of that salvation today. Help us to remember these things this Christmas and may you be precious in our hearts. For any who don't know you, who who haven't found that mercy, that forgiveness from sin, Lord, would you work in them today? For our neighbors who who flaunt sin or who, who try to live good lives but aren't even aware that their goodness is tainted by this depravity that we all have, would you work in them? Would we be faithful witnesses of the truth? Would you save them as well? Our loved ones, our our siblings, our, our parents, our, our kids that aren't walking with you. Lord, please save them. May your glory be shown this Christmas through the salvation that you bring us. We thank you for the rainbow. We thank you for the manger. We thank you for the cross and the empty tomb. We pray these things in Christ's name.